You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Today is mailbag time. We got some questions from listeners and we're going to answer them. Joining us today is Hannah Ehrenreich, sexy radio voice haver and... <laughs> Indeed. And community development professional. So one of us is in agriculture, another person does a lot of community and money stuff. So between the two of us, we're going to get her done. We have some good questions. I'm excited. We should be able to get through, I don't know about all of them, but a lot of them. And if we have a bunch left over, we're going to aim for about an hour. Maybe we'll have a second episode of Mailbag Stuff. Okay, we have a question from Patreon supporter Singachi. I hope I am saying that right. Do you have anything to share about aquifer depleting agriculture in the Southwest? I lived in Arizona for a while and kept hearing about how water intensive the orchards and ranching down there were and how much it contributed to aquifer depletion. But I just don't know much about agriculture. Why is it so water intensive? Why would anyone want to do water intensive agriculture in Arizona? So I will say, like, as a crop scientist, there are actually a lot of advantages to growing things in a dry place as long as you can irrigate the water in the soil underneath them. A lot of things have to dry in order to be usable. Like, wheat has, like, the whole plant has to dry down. If you look at a field of ripe wheat, the whole thing is dry. Like, it's, if you let a match, it would just go up in flames. And that is because that's the natural part of the wheat's life cycle. It was domesticated in Mesopotamia, where you have a cool season that's rainy, wheat grows. In most places, you plant in the fall. It's one of those cool season grasses, like a lot of long grasses. So it likes a nice cool slash cold, moist winter. And then in the spring and summer, it heads up and it wants to turn dry so it can drop all of its seeds, right? It just wants to dry up. So if you have a climate that does not let it do that, the seeds will get super moldy. And then you can't eat them. They grow things called vomitoxins. Terrible. <laughs> what the molds produce. It's so, bad. Yeah. So if you're growing wheat in a place where you have that climate just naturally, it's a cool, moist winter, and then you have a hot, dry spring, it's actually going to be really happy, and it's a very appropriate crop for that place. You may be able to grow it with or without irrigation, depending on a lot of other things. So that, you know, that is to say, a lot of plants actually kind of want that, because there are a lot of natural environments where the soil may be cool and moist part of the year, and then it gets really dry, and that's just part of their life cycle, and that's what they need. Pecans, a little bit are like that. They're used to living in river bottoms. So that means there's a water table that's really high. So they're used to having like a lot of water down there. But it's not because it's raining all the time. So they like having dry overparts. Pecans are a lot more used to humidity though than most other nut trees. Almonds are a good example. Pistachios are a great example. Mm. They're also from like desert river valleys. So they have really deep roots that are used to getting to a river water table that's that's fairly high, but it can fluctuate. So they do have deep roots they can get down if they need to. And then, because it's a dry desert river valley, they drop their drop their nuts. <laughs> they drop their nuts in a dry season. Like, that's that's what they're adapted Sarah, to Sarah, I love that you are the consummate professional and expert. And then we have a nut joke just right I mean, there, I just, sitting I on the table. Both what are we supposed to do? Like, that's <laughs> just what it is. So there are just Nobody a lot of plants. sweaty nuts. Nice and dry. Everybody mm. wants them. So there's a lot of plants where that just, that is their natural life cycle. That's where they want to grow. So, like... The problem was if you want to grow pistachios in a desert, but not right next to one of the few like seasonal rivers, then you have to make that up with watering. So that's kind of what we get into. There's like a whole lot to, more to say about irrigated crops. It's not necessarily a bad thing to do. The idea that it inevitably leads to salt buildup in the soil is not true. There are ways to manage that. They had textbooks on how to keep that from happening in ancient Mesopotamia. The reason a lot of places over there salted up is not because they were irrigating. It's because the sea level rose. <laughs> like... Yeah, the they were building. Bow. Yeah, they were building cities there so long ago that the sea level has changed since then, and like it was in the middle of the course of their civilization, right? So, 
It's not that the irrigation actually salted up anything. It's that the river itself got saltier because the sea was moving in. And so they were irrigating with saltier and saltier water. That's why the tactics they've been using to keep salt accumulation down for hundreds of years stopped working. It was sea level rise. It was not irrigation. That kind of drives me nuts. That's why trade between Mesopotamia and India was a lot easier is because the sea level was so far down that they were a lot closer together back then. <laughs> so like things have changed a lot. It was not irrigation. It was sea level rise that did it to them. Um, there's a lot of mythology out there on how irrigation is just bad, bad, bad. And I would say there are actually some great uses for it. And now we're going to get into why we're using it badly. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. So if irrigation can be a tool for a lot of good things, but also can be bad, then human interest and why we're doing things and how we're making our decisions is going to play into whether we can use it well in a way that's like long-term constructive or if it's destructive, right? So to me, this is not an irrigation problem. This is a people problem. So my understanding, the way water rights work in much of the West is it's kind of a use it or lose it thing. It's first come, first serve. So if you're one of the first settlers to acquire land in that area mm -hmm. and get some water rights that are tied to that land, you know, like, so for example, uh, I literally decided not to live in the West because I didn't want to deal with this shit. So like, <laughs> so like if you're, if you're a crop scientist and you want to have a real job, you should live out West because irrigated agriculture is so expensive. Like you have to build all those irrigation works. So you actually have to be very productive and very like effective in your agriculture. So they want to hire crop scientists. They don't really do that out East because they just kind of like wait for it to rain. And then they're like, that's good enough. There's a lot less cost involved. And so you are not under as much pressure to run a productive farm. So ironically, that's why the agriculture in the West is a lot more professionalized and so much of our food supply comes from out there as opposed to where it's actually easier to farm out here out east. But it's a use it or lose it system. So you can get your water rights that you got because your great, 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 great granddaddy was a first tier colonist back in the 17, 1800s. But if you don't use that much water, like you've got a certain water allotment for that land. And if you don't use it every single year, then you might not keep getting it. So what happens if you're a farmer and you decide to be more efficient with your water? Well, then you don't have water. <laughs> you know, like you, you this have a lot is how water. they budget in the army, too. Mm -hmm. You don't yeah. use it, you lose it. It's a very negative incentive system. Yeah, it famously leads to like just really effective use of resources, right? Totally. Yeah. Very effective. So here's the thing is the secret of a lot of agriculture is the business model sometimes is to make your money selling crops. You may or may not make money. But what you will always make money on is just hold the land for however long it takes to appreciate to a nice high value when people want to buy it and put real estate developments on it. You will always make money doing that. Mm. So the real business model in agriculture, no matter how much people say it's not, the real business model in agriculture is just hanging on to land until somebody wants to build houses on it. So if you're out west and it's dry, in order to sell for real estate development, you have to prove that you have enough water rights tied to that land to feed a suburban development. People like toilets that flush. They do. They Even do. though there yeah. are other models of toilets. Yeah. That is the model that sells suburban tract housing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, like, I don't know what the legal situation is, like how much water is required per house. Is it just like human maintenance or is it like we also want a lot? Is that also part of the requirement? I don't know that. I'm sure it depends on the state and the, and the jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And whether they've implemented any zero escaping zoning requirements and things like that. Yeah. Like how are we deciding what a lot needs? So it's wild to me that it's kind of being framed as like, oh, the water rights arguments are pitting farmers against development. I'm like, farmers are hogging water so they can participate in development. <laughs> it's different. It's just different. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? And because of that use or lose it incentive, farmers are not incentivized in any way to become more efficient with their water. And the water is very cheap for them as well. And like when I was working up in the Columbia River Valley, 
the farmers up there would complain about how they're getting taken advantage of by the cities and blah, 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 blah. But the fact that they could farm at all was because the government was paying for the Columbia River Valley Irrigation Project. Mm-hmm. And the way the, that those investments were being made back was selling electricity from the hydropower dams that provided the irrigation. So, like, the way it looked to me, the whole rest of society was subsidizing the farmers. Yes. Yeah. It's socializing the cost and privatizing the profit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and I have talked about this, but in case anyone listening has not heard this before, farmers are not poor. They are just categorically not poor. If any way you slice it, net worth, income, like actual take-home income per year, after you take away all the farm expenses and debt and all that stuff, farmers make like 20 to 30% more money on the median than like non-farmers. There is just no slicing it where farmers are poor in the United States at this time. The idea that farmers are poor is a very outdated concept based on when the United States had a lot of tenant farmers and sharecroppers in it, and we haven't had those in like 50 years. So... I just want to put in a little plug here as well. One of the fun mythologies of deeply divided society conflict was resource conflict, Mm -hmm. and specifically water resource conflict. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part of this little like boogaboo for international development and international conflict resolution, which again, we are a little far afield, but I'll make it short. No, no, this is good. Is always negotiated settlement. Mm -hmm. Water is not scarce. Use of water when it's well-regulated, allows water to be abundant. Mm -hmm. So if you have a finite amount of water, let's say a ground-based aquifer that only refills once or twice a year, and you have a negotiated settlement where everybody knows how much water they're allowed to take, and they take that amount of water with hopefully some sort of infrastructure that allows you to come up with other sources of water, either rain catchment or desalination or whatever it is, you don't have any conflict over the water. It's when there's an unequal, inequitable division or a non-negotiated settlement where it's kind of like more of a free-for-all. That's where you have issues Mm -hmm. surrounding the usage of water. Yeah. Militarized or not.